All right, let's begin tonight with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, we thank you so much for this evening and the opportunity to once again open up the word of life. And Lord, as we are, we recognize that it's inspired by you and therefore we need you to interpret it for us. We need you to help us to understand the things that we are talking about, how it applies to us and what you would have us do in these last days. And so, Lord, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would impress upon our hearts and minds the things that you would have us understand and the things you would have us do. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, tonight, for some of you, might be the night that you have been waiting for. And the reason that I say that is because when it comes to the Bible prophecy and how Israel fits into that, it seems like all eyes are on Israel. On New Year's Eve 1999, the Israeli police assembled in record numbers. They were determined to keep the peace amongst the growing concerns of terrorism and the possible explosive actions of religious fanatics. There were hundreds and thousands of people who were crowding towards the Wailing Wall and the Temple Mount. There were news reporters from all over the world that were swarming Jerusalem and the city of David, and they were waiting for the long-expected millennium. And since many people connected the new millennium with the end of the world... And since many people were thinking that Jerusalem is where the events of the end of the world were all going to take place, it seemed like the place to be before the year 2000 struck. In November of 1999, Newsweek magazine had an article in there about what the Bible says about the end of the world. And I'd like you to notice what they said. They said the predominant issue in Christian prophecy is the return of the Jews to the Holy Land and the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. For true believers, ground zero for apocalyptic zealotry remains the city of Jerusalem. And so I would ask you the question, why does it seem that all eyes are on Israel when you start talking about Bible prophecy? And I would say there are Many reasons, but one of the biggest reasons is that literally millions of Christians in the world today believe that when you're talking about Bible prophecy, they believe that the events of the end of the world are going to center around the Middle East, around Jerusalem, and particularly around the Jews. And so we really need to ask ourselves a question. And that question is, is Israel the center of apocalyptic prophecy? In other words, in other words, should we have our attention focused on Israel now, or should we be looking somewhere else? And as we go through this topic tonight, we are going to be looking at what the Bible teaches about Israel. But before we begin, we must ask ourselves a very simple question. And that question is, who was Israel? And you'll remember in the Old Testament, there was a man by the name of Jacob. And Jacob was the son of Isaac, and Isaac was the son of Abraham, and Abraham was the father of the Jews. And you'll remember that Jacob means deceiver. And there is a story told in the Old Testament there how Jacob deceived his older brother out of his birthright and the blessing of his father. And you can see Jacob here in this picture kneeling before his aging father. And at this point, Isaac can no longer see. He's a blind man. And so he's just strictly going by smell and feel. And when Jacob comes, you'll notice that he's got this funny looking thing on his hand. Because his brother Esau was a very hairy man. 
And so he's pretending to be his brother. And so he takes some goat hair and he puts it on his hands and his arms so that when his father feels it, he thinks that he's talking to Esau and he gives him the blessing. And sure enough, the trickery works. And his father gives him the blessing that should have gone to the oldest son. And Esau was so angry that he said in Genesis 27, verse 36, Is he not rightly called Jacob? Because Jacob means deceiver, right? He had deceived him out of his birthright. But Esau was so angry with Jacob that he was pondering in his heart to kill him. And so Jacob fled for his life. He left his home, he left the promised land, and he went out into the wilderness. And one night, Jacob had a dream. And in that dream, he saw angels going back and forth from heaven and earth on a ladder. You ever heard of Jacob's ladder? That's where that came from, right? And essentially, what Jacob's ladder was symbolic of was none other than Jesus Christ as being the way by which man would be reunited with heaven. And, and Jacob spent uh, about 20 years away from his homeland. And he ended up marrying several women and had many children. But then God began to work on his heart that he needed to go back to his homeland. He needed to go back to his family. He needed to go back to his brother Esau. And so Jacob is taking all of his family and he is going back to his homeland. But the closer that he gets, the scareder that he gets because he's not sure if his brother still holds a grudge against him. He's not sure if his brother still has a vengeance. And so he really is seeking for some assurance. He needs to know that he has been forgiven. And so one night, he just sends all of his family ahead and he stays behind. And that night, he wrestles with a man. And he wrestles with that man all night long. And just before the break of the day, that man touches him on the hip and knocks his hip out of place And when that happens, Jacob realizes that he is not wrestling with an ordinary man. He's wrestling with the Lord himself. And so now he's holding on and he won't let go because he needs that assurance. And right before the break of the dawn, the Lord says to him, let me go. And he says, no, I will not let you go until or unless you bless me. Right? He needed that assurance. And so that night, Jacob received a new name. And that new name was Israel. And Israel means overcomer or someone who has been victorious. And so Israel is the spiritual name that was given to the father of the spiritual nation of Israel. We also learn from the Bible that Jacob or Israel had 12 sons and they were known as the sons of Israel and they became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel and that's where we get the nation of Israel that we know today. The Bible says in Genesis 32 verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel. Now I want to point out to you that the New Testament makes a very big distinction between Israel and all of his children. And I want to show you this. Uh, Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. That's going to be page 1301 in your seminar Bible. Romans chapter 9, and I'd like you to notice what it says starting in verse 1. The Bible says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the serving of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, 
who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are what? Who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And so here we see the Apostle Paul saying that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Did you catch that? In other words, there is the Israel of the flesh. And then he speaks of the children of promise. All right? He refers to those children who came by Isaac as the children of promise. And notice what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 39. He says, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. In other words, what he is saying is, You must not be the children of Abraham. Because if you were, you would be doing the works of Abraham, right? All right, then in another place, in John chapter 1, verse 47, you'll remember when Jesus saw Nathanael. Do you remember what he said to him? Clearly, uh, Nathanael is a man who was in harmony with God. Because he says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed. Remember that? In other words, an Israelite in truth or a true Israelite. That's really what Jesus is saying. And so, what does that mean? It means there are two Israels. Did you catch that? Two Israels. Now, notice what Paul says to the Romans in chapter 2, verse 28. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. And so here he's saying, just because you're of the lineage of Israel doesn't mean you're an Israelite. That's really what he's saying. And he's talking about the Israel in the flesh, that is the nation of Israel over there in the Middle East in Palestine. He goes on to say, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, And circumcision is that of the heart. And so you see Paul all through the New Testament revealing that there are two Israels. There is the Israel of the flesh, that is those who believed that they received the promises of God just by the fact that they were descendants of Abraham, of the genealogy of Abraham, right? And then there is the Israel of the Spirit or spiritual Israel. And those are the ones who believed like Abraham did. They had the faith of Abraham, not those who had the genes of Abraham. And you see the difference there. They are the descendants of Abraham's faith, not the descendants of Abraham's genes. He is a Jew... Paul said, not who is one outwardly, but one who is inwardly. In other words, someone who had the same faith that Abraham did. Someone who believed what Abraham did. Someone who does the works that Abraham does. And so then he says, not all Israel are of Israel. What he's, what's he saying there? He's simply saying there are two Israels. There's the Israel of the flesh, those who have the genealogy of Abraham. And then there is the Israel of the spirit or spiritual Israel. And that's those who believe like Abraham believed. You see the difference? Okay, so I have a question for you then. Which of the two Israels are all of the promises of God given to? Are they given to the Israel of the flesh? Or are they given to spiritual Israel. In order to answer that question, we are going to look at an amazing prophecy that so clearly shows that Jesus is the Messiah, 
that the Jewish rabbis put a curse on anyone who would attempt to determine the meaning of this prophecy. Because remember, the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, right? But this prophecy so perfectly shows that Jesus is the Messiah that they wrote this in Talmudic law. May the bones of the hands and the bones of the fingers decay and decompose of him who turns the pages of the book of Daniel to find out the time of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, and may his memory rot from off of the face of the earth forever. That's a pretty serious curse, isn't it? So if you have the courage, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, and we are going to look at this prophecy. While you're turning to Daniel chapter 9, I just want to remind you that we need to understand that the nation of Israel was very good at continually breaking the conditions of God's promises. God said, if you keep my commandments, my laws, my statutes, then I will do all these things for you. But they kept breaking those laws, commandments, and statutes. And so they were continuously finding themselves in trouble. And at the time of this writing of Daniel chapter 9, you'll remember that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had gone to Israel, he had destroyed Israel, and he brought many of the people back to Babylon as captives. And so this is the time when Daniel is a part of those captives. And this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is really just an extension of Daniel chapter 8. But we're not going to talk about Daniel chapter 8 tonight. We're going to come back to that because what we need to find out, and that is whether we're looking at the promises given to the Israel in the flesh or the Israel in the spirit. And so I will just tell you that in Daniel chapter 8... Daniel has a vision and he's so shook up by this vision that he gets down on his knees and he starts praying and asking God to reveal to him what this uh, vision meant. And so in Daniel chapter 9, this is where Daniel is told what the vision is. Now notice what it says here starting in verse 23. It says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So what we have here is an angel. And he says to Daniel, the moment you started praying, God dispatched me to come and tell you what the vision means. And here I am. Now, this is what he says. This is the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, what we see here is this angel telling Daniel there are 70 weeks for your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews, right? Daniel was a Jew. And so this is a prophecy that is for the nation of Israel. And it's specifically for them. He says, for your people and for your holy city. Now, I'd like you to notice what they are asked to do during this 70 weeks of probation. Really, this is what they get, right? God says you have 70 weeks And this is what I want you to do. You are to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, make reconciliation for iniquity, seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. God says essentially, Israel, you've got 70 weeks to get it right. Now, do you think that they could do it? Well, if they hadn't done it so far, how are they going to do it now? Well, the answer is in verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until who? Messiah the Prince. Aha! 
if the long-awaited deliverer would come during this 70 weeks of probation, they just might have a chance. Right? And that it goes on to say, to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war's desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate." Now, what we have here, basically, there are four verses of this prophecy, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And these are known as the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this prophecy in the way of a timeline. And I meant to give you this timeline, but I didn't bring it with me. I'm sorry. I'm going to bring it Monday night. And so you're going to have this timeline. I just won't be able to give it to you tonight. But notice what it says there in Daniel 9, verse 26. It says, The Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Right? It should remind us of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, which says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. Right? In other words, the Messiah was going to be cut off. Jesus was going to die, but not for himself, not for his own sins. He was going to die for your sins and mine. And then also notice what it says there in verse 27. While he is readdressing this last week of this 70-week prophecy, he shall confirm a covenant with many, and in the middle of the week, He will bring an end to offerings and sacrifices. So let's put those things on the timeline here. Right here in that last week, it says that the Messiah is going to be cut off, but not for himself. And then he would confirm a covenant with many, and he would bring an end to sacrifice and offerings in the midst of that final week. And so there we have that added to our timeline. And so, I want you to notice here where that timeline begins. It says here that the beginning of that is going to be the command to build and restore Jerusalem. Do you see that there? And we can see that in verse 25. And I want you to see how we know that. Because look what it says. It says, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. What's that word from? That indicates the starting point, doesn't it? And so the starting point of this 70 weeks of prophecy is going to be the command to restore and to build Jerusalem. And then we see that there are Seven weeks plus 62 weeks. Go back to verse 25. Notice what it says. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome time. So what we have here is seven weeks and 62 weeks. So what's seven plus 62? 69. So we have that on our timeline there. We have 69 weeks. And he says during that 69 weeks, the streets and the walls are going to be rebuilt even in troublesome times. Somewhere within that 69 weeks, that has to happen. And then it says what? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until what? Until Messiah the Prince. And so we have that seven weeks and that 62 weeks. And then who should we see? The Messiah. That's right. Now, I want to uh, talk to you about the command 
to restore and build Jerusalem. I want to point out to you that there were three decrees that were made by the Persian Empire. Now, you'll remember that we already talked about this, that Daniel and the people of Israel were taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon, right? But then you'll remember that we saw in Daniel chapter 2, when we saw that metal image, that that head of gold was not going to rule the world forever, but somebody was going to come and defeat them. Do you know who it was? The Medo-Persians, that's right. And we talked about how that happened. Do you remember how we said that Cyrus, the king of the Medes and Persians, dried up the river and they walked down into the riverbed and they went through the gates and they basically conquered an unconquerable city in one night. And they took over. And so at that point then, Cyrus was the king and it was Cyrus who made the first decree. And essentially what he said to them is, uh, Israel, you can go back to the land of Israel and you can build the walls of the city, you can build your homes, you can build the temple, but you're still under control of the Persian Empire. You're just a part of it, right? We're going to still have control, but you can go back and build. And then several years went by, And they were starting to have trouble. There were people that were around Israel that didn't want to see Israel built back up. And they started giving them a hard time. And they even wrote a letter to the Persian king, who by now was Darius. And they said to him, you know, you've got these people here and they're building up this city and they're just a bunch of troublemakers and you need to come here and put this to an end. And so Darius goes back through the records And he sees that Cyrus had made this decree that they could go and build. And so Darius makes that second decree, which is exactly the same that Cyrus did. He basically just says, leave them alone. They have permission and they're going to build and they're still a part of the Persian Empire. And then more time went on and now Artaxerxes becomes the king of Persia. And Artaxerxes adds something to that. And I want to show you this. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 6. Go back to the Old Testament. It's going to be page 541. But if you find First and Second Samuel, then First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, right after Second Chronicles is Ezra. If you get to Nehemiah, you've gone too far. Ezra chapter 6. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So what we see here is that the command to restore and build Jerusalem is not fully met in the prophecy until all three of these decrees have gone out. And the third one is the one by Artaxerxes. And I want to show you what he does that's different. Basically, Ezra chapter 7 is this uh, decree that goes out from Artaxerxes. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I want to jump into the middle of it and I want to point something out to you. So go with me to Ezra 7, verse 24. And notice what it says. Also we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Now here we see something different in the decree of Artaxerxes that we didn't see in the other two decrees. You'll remember that Cyrus and Darius basically said you can go back to the land of Israel and you can rebuild it but you're under our control. 
But here in this decree by Artaxerxes, he is basically re-establishing them as a nation and giving them authorization to set up their own government. Did you see that? He said, set up magistrates and judges. And so the first two decrees were a command to build Jerusalem, but this one includes building and restoring them as a nation. Okay? And so here we have the beginning point, and that is this command by Artaxerxes. So now all we've got to do is look in history to see if history shows us when that decree was made. And in fact, history does. It was made in 457 B.C. And so let's just add that onto our timeline. And so the command to restore and build Jerusalem was given in 457 B.C. Now, seven weeks plus 62 weeks equals 69 weeks, right? And there are 69 weeks and there are seven days in a week. So how many days is this? What's 69 times 7? Any math geniuses here? I'll just tell you. 483 days. Okay? You can get your calculator out and verify that. But that's what it is. And you'll remember that we already looked at this in the 1,260-day prophecy. In prophecy, a day equals what? A year. So this is really 483 years. Now, let me ask you a question. If you go from the starting point of 457 B.C. and you go 483 years, what does that take you to? You've got to go back to math class. 483 minus 457 takes you to 26 A.D. But there's a problem. Because when you're going from B.C. to A.D., there's no zero year. It doesn't go 4 B.C., 3 B.C., 2, 1, 0, 1 A.D., right? It goes 2 B.C., 1 B.C., 1 A.D. So we've got to add a year onto that, and that takes us to 27 A.D. And what should we see in 27 A.D.? Messiah the Prince, right? I'd like you to notice that in the Hebrew language, the word Messiah means the Anointed One. And in the Greek language, the word Christ means the Anointed One. Now let me show you something. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. That's going to be page 1266 of your seminar Bible. And I want you to notice what it says starting in verse 36. Acts 10, verse 36 through 38. It says, The Word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That Word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God did what? anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And so here we see in Acts chapter 10 that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and then He went around doing good. And so I ask you the question, when did God anoint Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit? At his baptism, right? I want to show you this. Look with me in in Luke. Luke chapter 3. This is going to be page 1182 of your seminar Bible. Luke chapter 3. And notice what it says in verse 21 and 22. The Bible says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. 
Now, let me tell you the significance of this moment. Up until this point, if you look through the Gospels, Jesus, you really don't see much about Him, do you? Uh, You see where He was born in Bethlehem. You see where Mary and Joseph had to flee with Him to Egypt. You see where He was uh, dedicated at the temple. And you see at the age of 12 when He went uh, and then His parents left Him there in the temple. But other than that, you don't see anything of Jesus until this point. He's in the carpenter shop. He's working with Joseph, right? And after His baptism, He is drawn by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness where He is tested. And then He begins His public ministry as guess who? The Messiah, right? This is the moment at His baptism when Jesus becomes the Anointed One. The One who would be the Messiah of Israel. Now, this is interesting. We can actually find out from the Bible and history when Jesus was baptized. I'd like you to look with me here in Luke. Go back, you're still in chapter 3, but go back to verse 1 and 2. Notice what it says. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now this is... The beginning of this chapter of Jesus being baptized, and it seems like there's a whole lot of things going on all at once, isn't there? I love the way God does this, because He gives us enough information that we can go to the history books, and we can triangulate all of this stuff when all of these people were in power, and we can find out exactly when Jesus was baptized. But I'm going to look at just one of them with you. I just happened to go online on an online encyclopedia, and I'd like you to notice what the history books say. It says, In A.D. 7, Agrippa Postumus was disowned by Augustus and banned to the island of Planasia to live in solitary confinement. Thus, when in A.D. 13, the powers held by Tiberius were made equal rather than second to Augustus' own powers, he was for all intents and purposes a co-precept with Augustus, and in the event of the latter's passing, he would simply continue to rule. So what we see here from the history book is that Tiberius Caesar began to reign with Augustus in A.D. 13. And if you go back to Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it says that it was in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign that, that we see that Jesus was baptized, right? So let's do the math. We start in A.D. 13, and we're going to go 15 years, right? And so we have A.D. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. In 27 A.D. is when Jesus was baptized And He became the Anointed One. Right on time. And Jesus knew this. And I want to show you this. Notice what it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying the what? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says the time is at hand. What time? Prophetic time. Jesus was announcing His arrival on the scene as the Anointed One. As the Messiah of Israel. Now, let's go back to our 70-week timeline. In Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says that Jesus was about 30 years old when He was baptized. 
Now, you're really smart people, and so you might look at this and you might say, hold on a minute, Pastor. How can Jesus be 30 years old in 27 A.D.? Because after His death, didn't they go back and readjust and put us into the Anno Domini timing system? And they started with Jesus' birth. And so it should be 30 A.D. when He's 30 years old, right? But they made a mistake. And they figured it out later after they had already set all of this up and they couldn't go back and fix it, but they went back and they recalculated. Because where they figured the mistake was is they figured that Herod was already dead when Jesus was born. But you'll remember that it was Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was born. Right? So Herod was alive. And so they went back and they recalculated and they said, oh yeah, we made a mistake. Jesus was born in 4 B.C. Because there's no zero year, right? So you take three years and add it on there. He was 30 years old, 27 A.D. I just wanted to point that out because I know one of you guys were going to ask me that question. All right, so we're brought to 27 A.D. at Jesus' baptism, and that leaves how much time left in the prophecy? One week. That's right. And how many days are there in a week? Seven days. But in Bible prophecy, a day equals a year. So we have seven years left of this 490-year prophecy. Now, I want you to go back to Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to look at verse 27 again. And I want you to notice what it says here. It says, He shall confirm a covenant... For one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifices and offerings. Do you see that? Now let me ask you a question. What is the midst or what is the middle of seven years? Three and a half years, right? Half of seven is three and a half. Now let me ask you another question. Did anything important happen Three and a half years into Jesus' ministry that would cause an end to sacrifices and offerings. Absolutely. Jesus Christ was crucified right on time. Remember Jesus said to His disciples, any time is good for you. Right? When they wanted Him to go up to the temple. Jesus worked it out so that He would die right on time. And it says that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for Himself. Jesus' death on the cross brought an end to sacrifice and offerings. Because remember, it was the Passover when Jesus died. And the Passover lamb was ready to be slain at the very moment that Jesus was expiring But the Bible says that at the time that He was dying, in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, and the veil in the temple was rent in twain, torn in half, from bottom to top? No, from top to bottom, indicating that only a supernatural hand could have done this. We're talking about a very thick veil, right? Now, what's significant about this is that this brought an end to the sacrificial system. Jesus Christ, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 10, was the Lamb that was to die once and for all. And so that's why in Colossians chapter 2, and we already talked about that, and in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about those handwritings of ordinances that was against us that were nailed to the cross. That was the ceremonial law that was nailed to the cross because Christ died and all of those things that were symbolically pointing forward to Him were now being taken up into reality. Right? It all had symbolic meaning. And we're going to talk more about that as we go through this seminar. But the first thing that would kick off this reality... And that all of these symbols were pointing forward to was the sacrifice of Christ. Now, if Christ died in the middle of that seven years, and that brought an end to sacrifices and offerings, but if Jesus died 
in the middle of that seven years, then there's still three and a half years left, isn't there? Now, before I go any further, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard of the seven-year tribulation? I see a few of you, maybe half of you. All right, well, let me explain to you where that comes from. You'll remember that as the, the Reformation began to gain ground and began to grow, and the Bible started being printed, and people started reading the Bible for themselves, and all of the Reformers started discovering that the papacy was the Antichrist, then you'll remember that the Catholic Church came up with a group of highly intelligent people called the Society of Jesus. And their whole purpose was to come up with some theology, some teaching that would take the heat off of them as the papacy. You remember that? We talked about that already. And you'll remember that it was a man by the name of Francisco Ribera that came up with this new theology. And basically what this theology was is that from the command to restore and build Jerusalem up to 27 A.D., was good, but then they took the seven last years and they moved it all the way out to the end of time. Right? It's called the gap theory. Because what they did is they said, no, it's a sinister man outside of the church all the way at the end of time. He's going to be very charismatic. He's going to make an agreement with Israel that they can rebuild the temple and they can start sacrificing again. And then halfway through that seven-year treaty, he's going to go in the temple. He's going to sit down. He's going to say, I'm God. Stop sacrificing animals. You now come worship me. That's what many people believe today. It didn't catch on at first. But today... Many people believe that. But I want to show you how foolish that really is. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are looking for a job. And you finally get an interview. And you go in and this company says that they're going to hire you making more money than you were expecting. So you're pretty excited about this, right? And the boss tells you that in 70 weeks, you're going to get a raise. Now, you're a pretty smart person, so you do the calculation and you realize there are 52 weeks in a year. And so this is about a year and a half's time and you're going to get a raise. Now, normally when you work for a company, after your first year, you get a raise. But since you're already making more than you expected, you say, okay, I'll take the job. And you start working for this company and you love the job. And the company loves you. You're doing a fantastic job. And so you're getting excited. And 60 weeks come up. And you're thinking, man, I'm going to get that raise pretty soon. And then 65, 68, 69 weeks, you're excited. And that 70th week comes. And you look at your paycheck. And there's no raise. And you go to the boss and you say, hey, I I thought I was going to get a raise in 70 weeks. And the boss says, oh, didn't I tell you? There are 2,000 weeks between the 69th and the 70th week. What would you say? You say that's ridiculous, right? That doesn't make a bit of sense. The 70th week has to follow the 69th week. And this is a 70-week prophecy. So week number 70 has to follow week number 69. You can't take that last seven years and move it all the way out to the end of time. It makes absolutely no sense at all. And that gap theory is called futurism. And the reason it's called futurism is because they're claiming that the Antichrist is going to come all the way at the end of time, right? And that is just a counter-teaching of what the Bible clearly teaches. Now, let's go back to our timeline and, and this amazing prophecy. Notice what it says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And he shall confirm the what? Covenant with many for one week. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is this talking about Jesus Christ? Or is it talking about the Antichrist at the end of time like futurism teaches? 
They're talking about the Christ, right? Well, let me, let me just show you something. Go, go with me here in Daniel chapter 9. And I want to show you something. Notice verse 27 says, And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Right? We've got that. Now, I want to show you something that is happening here. And you may not be aware of it. But if you go to verse 25, notice that it says, to restore and build Jerusalem until who? Messiah the Prince. And then it starts talking about the walls being rebuilt in troublesome time, right? So what we're seeing here is they're talking about the Messiah and they're talking about the city. Now go to verse 26. They're talking about the Messiah and then they're talking about the city. This is an Eastern way of writing. And so there's a pattern here, isn't there? It's talking about Christ. Then it talks about the city in verse 25. Then verse 26, it's talking about Christ. And then it's talking about the city. And then when you go to verse 27 and it says He, that's where they say it's the Antichrist. And then it's talking about the city. But that doesn't make any sense at all. It has to keep within the pattern of that Eastern writing. The Messiah, the city. The Messiah, the city. The Messiah, the city. And so that's just another thing that would help us there to confirm that. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Jesus Christ was the minister of the circumcision to what? Confirm the promises, that's the covenant, Made unto the fathers, right? Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you can confirm a reservation for two tickets from Detroit Metro Airport to Honolulu, Hawaii for tomorrow night? Anybody able to confirm those reservations? You might wish you could, right? Dennis wishes he could. But the only person that can confirm a reservation is someone who made one, right? And the only person that can confirm a covenant is someone who made one. And the only person in the Bible who made a covenant with Israel was Jesus Christ. Now look at the last verse of this prophecy. He shall confirm a covenant with many. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 26 verse 28. For this is my blood of the new what? Covenant, which is shed for who? For many, for the remission of sins. Here we clearly see from the Bible that Jesus was the one who confirmed the covenant with Israel, right? Now, notice what the Bible says. It said that Jesus would be cut off in the midst of that last week, right? And so three and a half years into that seven-year period, it says that Jesus died in the middle of that time. And so how could it be that Jesus could confirm that covenant for the whole time period? It's a good question, isn't it? And I want to tell you the answer. He was resurrected. And He gave the Holy Spirit to His disciples to continue persuading the nation of Israel to accept Him as the promised Messiah. Jesus confirmed the covenant in person for the first three and a half years and He confirmed it through His church for the last three and a half years. Isn't God amazing? Isn't He merciful? Even after they killed His Son, He still gave them three and a half years to accept Him as their Messiah. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was what? Confirmed unto us by them who heard Him. It first began to be confirmed by the Lord Himself and afterwards by His church. And you remember what Jesus said to His disciples? He said, Go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember that? And so Jesus specifically told them, I don't want you going anywhere but to the people of Israel. Because remember, this 70 weeks of probation was for the nation of Israel, right? And that 70 week was to be 
determined for you and your people and your city. And so those 70 weeks were probation for the Jews. And after Jesus died, He still gave them another three and a half years to reconsider and accept Him as their Messiah. But three and a half years after the death of Christ, the leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, were given one last chance to repent through an address given by a man by the name of Stephen. The Bible says that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and power. And he indicted Israel for their persistent resistance and rejection of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that in Acts chapter 7, that the religious leaders stoned Stephen to death. And Israel as a nation was no longer the chosen vessel of God. Because of the stoning of Stephen a man began to be convicted that Jesus was indeed the Christ. And that conviction came to fruition in Acts chapter 9 when Saul the persecutor became the great Apostle Paul. But Paul was no ordinary Apostle. The Bible says that God chose him to go where no Jew had gone before. Acts chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus said to Paul, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. You see, immediately after Acts chapter 7 and the stoning of Stephen, we see the believers being dispersed by persecution in Jerusalem and the Gospel went to the Gentiles. First to Samaria, then to the Ethiopian, then Paul was converted and became an apostle to the Gentiles. Then Peter had his vision in Acts chapter 10 where he was shown not to call any man common or unclean. He goes to the Gentiles centurion Cornelius and he shares with him the gospel and the Holy Spirit is poured out right after the stoning of Stephen the gospel went to the Gentiles and Jewish probation was over and they were no longer considered the favored people of God 70 weeks are determined for your people in your city the time of the Gentiles had come in And the final rejection of Jesus Christ by the leaders of Israel in the stoning of Stephen happened in 34 A.D. Now you may not care to hear this calculation, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. If you go to Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says that his first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion came three years later. Three years after his conversion was his first trip to Jerusalem. Then if you go to Acts chapter, no, Galatians chapter 2 verse 1, it says that his second trip to Jerusalem was 14 years after the first. So three years plus 14 years, 17 years, right? And then shortly after his second visit to Jerusalem, Paul went on his second missionary journey, which took him into Corinth. And you can go to Acts chapter 18 and read about that. But in Acts chapter 18, verse 12, it says that while Paul was in Corinth, he stood and or appeared before the proconsul Gallio. And you can verify that in Acts 18, verse 12. And so Paul stood before Gallio 17 years after his conversion. And you are going to find this very interesting. They just discovered an inscription that was found in Corinth that says that Gallio's one-year proconsulship. Isn't that fascinating? God makes it so easy for us to figure this stuff out. Paul appeared before Gallio and come to find out Gallio only only had one year as a proconsul and it was in 51 A.D. So if you go to 51 A.D. and you go back 17 years to his conversion at the time of the stoning of Stephen, you get 34 A.D. Exactly three and a half years after the death of Jesus, Stephen is stoned in 34 A.D. 
and Jewish probation as a nation uh, is over. Now, you might ask, well, does that mean that the Jews can't be saved? No, not at all. Because they can be saved just like you and me. They have to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and then it says they will be grafted back into the vine, right? And we know that Jesus is the vine. And so He can be grafted in just like you and me. And so here you have it. Starting on the left, from the command to restore and build Jerusalem in 457 B.C., you go 483 years, and you get to 27 A.D., and Jesus shows up as the Messiah right on time. Three and a half years, He is crucified right on time. Three and a half years later, Stephen is stoned, and the Gospel goes to the Gentiles, and probation is over. Now, let me ask you a question. Did the Jewish nation fulfill the conditions of the probation? Did they finish the transgression? Did they make an end of sin? Did they make reconciliation for iniquity? Did they seal up vision and prophecy? Did they anoint the most holy place? Not as a nation. Because they didn't finish the transgression. They didn't put an end to sin. Because they didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, right? But the 70 weeks were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He finished the transgression. He made an end of sin. He made reconciliation and iniquity. He sealed up the vision and He anointed the most holy place. The 70 weeks were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And He became the new Israel. The overcomer on our behalf. He is the spiritual Father of Israel. He is the true Israel and the seed of Abraham. And that's why Paul can say to the Galatians, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. The question was, which Israel are the prophecies of the Bible pertaining to and which Israel are the promises made to? Physical Israel or spiritual Israel? We can see that Jesus is the only one who fulfilled the conditions. Galatians 3, verse 29 again. Paul says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And what? Heirs according to the promise. The promise is for all of those who are Christ's. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in in the flesh. Friends, we have our confidence in the One who can bring both Jew and Gentile together so that we all become one in Christ. The focus of the Christian world on physical Israel fulfilling the prophecies needs to be reevaluated. The seven-year tribulation which is determined by taking that last seven years of the prophecy and moving it all the way out to the end of time and taking it out of the 70 weeks and, and, and saying that it's going to be an Antichrist who comes on the scene. It, it all is a denial of Christ. And then in the middle of the three and a half years, the Antichrist is supposedly going to come on the scene and set in the temple and call himself God, right? Friends, that has to be reevaluated. To make up this theory with no Bible precedence whatsoever has to be reevaluated. And Monday night, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to look more into Israel and prophecy, but it's going to be spiritual Israel that we're going to be looking at. We have to rethink what Christian pastors and teachers are teaching today. And so I just want to end tonight by making this appeal to you. When it comes to end time prophecy, all eyes seem to be on physical Israel. But think about that for a minute. At the first advent of Christ, they were looking for a conquering king. 
and they missed the suffering servant. Could it be that in looking at physical Israel, we're going to miss spiritual Israel? Israel was named Israel because he wrestled with God and he received a name change. And the only people that are going to be Christ's are those who wrestle with God and receive a name change. And so tonight I want to do something that I haven't done before. I want to appeal to you. And I want to specifically appeal to anyone in this room who you've been going through these meetings and you are seeing perhaps for the first time in your life how clear the Bible actually is. And you are seeing for yourself that the Bible is truth. And you are recognizing that you need a Savior. And you have never asked Jesus Christ into your life. You've never asked Him to come in and be your Lord and Savior. To forgive you of your sins. To write His law on your mind and on your heart. If you have never done that before, I want to give you an opportunity tonight to make that decision. Do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you do, I want you to stand up right now. Don't be afraid. Stand up. And I'm going to give opportunity for anyone because I want you to notice something. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of Me before men, I will be ashamed of you before My Father in Heaven. But if you are not ashamed of Me before men, I will not be ashamed of you. And so we have to do it publicly. We have to be willing to stand up and say, I need a Savior. And I don't care what anybody else in the room thinks. If that's you, please stand up. Don't be afraid. I also want to make an appeal to anyone who has been going through these meetings and you are seeing the Bible in a way that you've never seen it before. You are seeing it so clearly that you are thinking to yourself, I can't believe how accurate the Bible is. And I want to recommit my life to Jesus Christ. If that's you, then I want to ask you to stand up too. If you want to make a recommitment, if you want to say, yes, I want to, I want to be a Christian. I want to put all of my trust in God. I want Him to be my Lord and Savior. I want Him to prepare me for His coming. If that's you, please stand up. I'm already standing. And I make that recommitment myself every day. Lord, I'm giving my heart to You again today. If that's you, please stand up. And let's pray. Oh, loving Father, Lord, I thank You for all of these that are standing. Lord, You know every heart in this room. You know every person. You know what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. And You know that we recognize our need for a Savior. And Lord, our prayer is for every person that stood up that has never made a commitment to You. Lord, we want to pray and ask that You would help them to surrender their heart to You. And Lord, that You would help them to walk for the rest of their life according to Your will. And for all of us that have recommitted ourselves to You, Lord, bless each one. Give us the wisdom that we need in these last days. Prepare our hearts for the things that are coming upon the world. Help us to recognize error when we hear it. Help us to recognize truth when we hear it. And help us to surrender ourselves to You and follow that truth. And Lord, we pray that in the end, we would not be among those who are deceived and worshiping the beast. We would be among those who are counted as the spiritual Israel. And so Lord, we ask it all and we pray it all because we know that we can count on You to do it because we're asking in the powerful name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.